Good evening. Welcome. Uh, my name is Shabu. I'm the lead pastor at Canterbury Gardens. Uh, it's a great privilege to have you here with us, if you're visiting particularly. Um, it's been great to hang out with Dan. Um, one, I've just been, I feel like I'm just being fed and my soul's being nourished and watching his family. Uh, so Dan's here with his son. Uh, he's in the car. No, he's not. Uh, <laughs> he's actually hopefully in bed. Uh, at my parents' place, actually, and uh, Dan's dad's uh, down this weekend as well. So um, just housekeeping stuff with anything. Those of you who can come to Canterbury, you know what I'm about to say. The restrooms or toilets around the corner. Um, normally we have tea and coffee. I just didn't get to it. So if you're really desperate for a tea or a coffee, the kitchen's there, the kettle's there, there's some cups there. Please help yourself. Uh, make yourself at home. Um, I'm going to pray for Dan and for us, and we'll jump straight into it. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for who you are. Uh, we thank you uh, for revealing yourself uh, to many of us, maybe even in this room. Maybe even in our own sphere of influence right now, there are uh, friends, family members uh, who are totally against who you are. You've given us this great responsibility and great joy and privilege to be part of uh, your kingdom work and to be ambassadors in this world. Thank you for the way that you gift many people in our kingdom, uh, in, in your kingdom, to be evangelists, to proclaim your truth. Thank you for Dan and his ability and willingness to come and serve tonight. Empower him, Holy Spirit. Help our own hearts to listen what you're saying to us individually. For those of us who know you, Help us to hear. Um, for those of us who are on that journey or skeptical and maybe even wondering, may you draw us closer to you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Dan Peterson. Amen. Thank you. Well, it's great to be back in my hometown in uh, Melbourne. Uh, so I've been for the last 25 years in exile, living up in Brisbane. Uh, and so that's kind of where most of the time I'm hanging out with my wife, Erin, uh, of nearly 10 years. And uh, we've got four, uh, not four, four boys, we've, um, I'm prophesying children now. Uh, we, have th- we have three kids. Uh, so Josiah, my eldest, is four years old. Um, he's down here with me. And then a boy, Zach, two, and then a newborn, Seth. So the reason why nothing I will say will make sense tonight is because I'm running on adrenaline, not on sleep, uh, sort of the modus operandi of having a young, crazy family. And so, but it is just a huge privilege to be back down here. I'm a Carton Blues supporter. I feel all of a sudden the faith rising again for a new season ahead next year. And uh, it's just, it's also exciting to see some green down here. Up where we are in Brisbane, it's just yellow and dead. Um, so please do just keep praying for what's happening around the country, particularly for people who are farmers and, uh, and what's happening. Drive flying down here on Friday. Um, we're just inland seeing all of the smoke and all of the frontier fires just continue to come even further inland. So it's a rough situation. Um, but I work for a guy named Ravi Zacharias. Uh, maybe you've seen him on YouTube. Maybe you've heard him before on radio programs. I read some of his books before. But, uh, but Ravi's been running a ministry now for 35 years uh, where the heartbeat or the tagline of the ministry is helping the thinker believe and helping the believer to think. 
and really the two arms of what I've been connected with for the last five years now on Australian soil is trying to help people who are seculars and sceptical and have questions and maybe post-Christian in their attitude and don't really know much about the Christian story come to see perhaps for the first time why Jesus is good news for them and why the Christian story is true even uh, against all of the objections that may be thrown at it. And on the other side of the equation, it's really to come and do things like this, where you can help Christians or people who believe in Jesus and follow him process, how then do I talk about my faith with people who don't believe the same as me? Particularly given the challenges of our culture and the climate right now, the polarization and some of the aggression, and how is it that I can talk helpfully about Jesus in a way that's going to make sense to people and draw them in to see him as good and true news? And so tonight we're going to be exploring uh, just this theme of God for others, that what we have found in Jesus is not just meant to be kept to ourselves, but it's actually something we've been entrusted with in the hopes that through us we'll partner with God in helping others come to see it as good and true news as well. Um, If you've got your Bibles with you, uh, please turn 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, that's totally fine. I'm going to read it out. Um, And if you are brand new to kind of exploring Christianity in the church and you just wandered in here or were dragged here tonight, um, what I hope you'll see tonight is the beauty of God bleeding through in his heart for you to know him uh, as we discuss this. So in in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, this is a passage written by the Apostle Paul. He was a persecutor of the early Christians, turned into one of the biggest proponents of the Christian story and the Christian gospel and going all around the world preaching about Jesus. And when he described the nature of what he understood to be his ministry, he described it in these terms. We're going to read from verse 19 in chapter 9 through to verse 23. And here's what he said. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being under the law myself, but in order that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Of course, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. I may share with them in its blessings. Um, Paul made it his life's goal to make the Christian story make sense to the secular and unbelieving world of his time. That was his driving passion. He believed with all of his heart that the story about Jesus of Nazareth that came to him first in a vision, the risen Jesus, and then was passed on to him, the traditions of the early apostles, the gospel that he had checked against theirs. He believed with all of his heart that this story was true and that it had implications for everyone It was C.S. Lewis that once famously said, one must keep pointing out that Christianity is a statement which, if false, is of no importance, but if true, is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. And so to the Apostle Paul, he wasn't playing at some game when it came to sharing God with others. We cannot play at Christianity but rather the pattern of the Christianity that he passed down included a relentless pursuit to see the people around him one to the truth and relevance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He didn't see this as an optional extra because eternal life literally hung in the balance. 
the weightiest of realities. Now, what Paul experienced, though, when he went around then the Greco-Roman world trying to talk about Jesus was that talking about Jesus was something like an episode of Stranger Things. To most people that were hearing him the first time, it simply didn't make sense. For some of them, they struggled with this supernatural worldview, a worldview where God is intervening and performing miracles, a concept of a creator God who's involved in this space-time universe. For others, it was the idea when he spoke that God loves all people rather than just some subset of humanity, a racial or religious class, an economic class. That didn't make sense to people. For others, it was the central claim of the gospel, namely that God would become human and then go on to die for sinful humans, broken humans, evil people. This idea of a weak God was a stumbling block to Jews and it was a foolishness to Greeks who thought that representing God ultimately had to do with the power of which tribal deity was able to defeat others. In the language of the Hulk, why would God die for puny humans? Now, these were cultural barriers that were based in belief systems that people had at the time, and they raised questions. How can this be true, and how can this God be good, based upon the things in your story that you're telling us? Paul was wise. He recognized that the heart, it cannot rejoice in what the mind rejects as false. And so if I'm going to win people to this story, I have to be able to help translate it in order that it makes sense. Somehow find a way to bridge the mind and the heart so that people can readily receive this as good and true news. And this is really where the concept of apologetics comes from. Now, whenever I speak in various places and perhaps I'm introduced as an apologist or people say Dan does apologetics, Often people are broadly confused. What does this mean? Does that mean that you go around saying sorry to everyone? Or is apologetics a course in saying sorry? And I said, sadly, no. If you come and hang out with me, you will not get a course in saying sorry. That is what marriage is for. So you can try that instead. But what apologetics is, it comes from is actually the world of jurisprudence. It's a legal term. In the ancient world, in the Greek language, there was a term apologia, which means to stand up and to give a defense. If someone made an accusation against you and you were dragged before the magistrate, you would stand up to give your defense, your apologia, to give an answer, to make a response. And this is something that Jesus' followers were doing from the very beginning. Everywhere that they went around talking about Jesus, people had questions and objections and confusions, and they made accusations against them. And so God's people, the followers of Jesus from the beginning, they offered reasons why you are to believe what you believe. Think about the kind of objections that people have today, that there's no reasons to believe that God exists, that belief in God is just a psychological crutch for the weak, that look at all the damage that religion has done in society. What is it to stand up and give an answer? Why, in the midst of this, is Jesus good and true news? And so the followers of Jesus went around defending and commending the Gospels. In fact, they took Jesus' commandment seriously. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6, one of the most famous verses for Hebrew thinkers, when he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your strength, and with all of your soul. Except when Jesus quotes it in the New Testament, he actually adds something that's not there in Deuteronomy. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
He leans into this given the great context of the time, the reason, the philosophers, the thinking. How is it that the story of God makes sense to the ideas of our mind? And so loving God with our mind is to frame him right in a way that makes sense to others. If you were to read the book of Acts and highlight with a red or yellow highlighter every single verb that describes the spreading of the Christian story of Jesus' disciples, his apostles going around and telling people about the gospel, you'll find that there are 26 different terms and 17 of those carry strong notions of persuasion. They were refuting and reasoning and debating and disputing and proving and persuading and defending and arguing and trying to convince. In other words, this wasn't just them coming up and saying something and then walking away. They were using their minds, logic on fire, to be able to persuade their hearers of the Christian truth. They used their minds both for the worship of God as well as for witness. And this is why when we come here to the Jews, Paul acts from the scriptures. Here's what they already believe, the Old Testament scriptures. And so he walks into a synagogue and he reasons from the scriptures why Jesus is the Christ. Or why in Acts 17, when all of a sudden he comes to the philosophers at the Areopagus, the Mars Hill, the huge marble outcrop right across from uh, the Acropolis in, in Athens, why he reasons from their spiritual hungers from their religious forms of worship, from their own poets and their own philosophers, which are quoted in the Bible, to then be able to offer them a case, how the one God that they don't know much about, the altar to an unknown God, this God has revealed himself in Jesus. He's not far from any one of us. And all you need to do is stumble out, reach out, and you too can grab hold of the reality that God raised Jesus from the dead and appointed him judge. Therefore, it's time to turn away from your pagan past and philosophies and instead repent and to trust in Christ. He reaches and makes his case from a very different footing than he does with the Jews. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. To the Greeks, I became as a Greek. Why? Because he is so passionate that as many as possible can be helped to make sense of the Christian story as to why it is good and true news. And the same thing that he and the first followers of Jesus were engaged in back then in the ancient world is the same thing that we too are called to do here and now. In Australia uh, right now, um, some of the latest research that we have available to us, if this clicks, lets me do it. There we go. Some of the latest research that we have available to us, this is now two years old, um, but there's no meaningful updates coming. They reveals to us that the lens through which most of our Australian friends are reading the Christian story is one with a vaguely spiritual and skeptical kind of lens. That there's still a large proportion of Christians in, people in Australia that would identify as being Christian, all up around something 60-ish percent. But as soon as you parse out what that means, less than 8% of people attend church with any form of regularity whatsoever, and very few do you see it having meaningful impact in the way it's shaping their lives. You also see a huge spike in the, na- in the number of what we would call religious nuns. This measured at 31%, nearly 32%. Uh, those who classify as having no religious identification of any kind, purely secular in their thinking. Some have spiritual but not religious But there is a growing number, particularly of young people, now over 50% of Generation Z and Generation Alpha, that do not at all identify with belief in God. 
we have a rapidly unbelieving, so to speak, culture in the world around us. And for many of them, they have all kinds of barriers that keep them from being able to accept that Jesus is good and true news. The hypocrisy of the church, the sexual ethics of the Bible that seem confusing and outdated, Old Testament troubled texts, or the multiplicity of religious beliefs. And what would it mean if we were to talk about final judgment? Where are all of these people going, the people that I love, people that I care about, if they don't follow your same God? And so there are many questions that people have that keep them back from being able to take the gospel seriously. And where this lands for us right now, why tonight actually matters, is because if we love our friends and our neighbors enough, then we're going to take their questions seriously enough to try and search for an answer that is going to point them to Jesus, a way that's going to help remove the stumbling blocks and barriers that keep them from being able to take a serious look at the cross as something that is meant for them and the thing that is good news for them. And so what I want to do as we're going through this tonight is I don't want you to think about hypothetical, faceless people outside of a knowledge of God. I want you to think about real people that you know. Because God doesn't consider hypotheticals when we're talking statistics and numbers. He thinks about faces and names of people he deeply loves, people he sent his son to die for, and yet people who don't yet know the gospel as good and true news. And to ponder the question, what would it actually take for the person that's in your mind, a neighbor, perhaps a friend, a family member, what will it take for the story of Jesus to land in their life in a way that it makes sense, in a way that they can say yes to him? What do you think, humanly speaking, that will involve? So what I want to talk about briefly tonight before giving a ton of time for Q&A, for you to ask questions and we can have a bit more broader conversation, is to look at five things that I think this kind of apologetics-driven evangelism has to look like where we both know our story and taking uh, seriously the kind of questions that people are asking. How is it that we should go about doing this in a way that's helpful given our cultural climate? Um, Number one, and this is, I think, paramount, is that apologetics must always be in service to the gospel. Um, Apologetics is primarily about winning people to Jesus, not about making a cheap point or scoring a winning uh, argument. For any number of reasons, people in our culture doubt that Christianity is, is true. And even if they became convinced that Christianity were true, they would see that as being bad news. One of the enduring legacies, the hangover from the new atheist era of a decade ago of Daniel Dennett and Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, is that they really shifted the tactic of the atheist conversation. Whereas the classical atheists like Bertrand Russell used to argue that God doesn't exist, that there are no good reasons to believe that God exists, the new atheists were more focused on showing the net negative impact of religious belief. Whether or not God exists is actually almost a moot point, but they said, look at the impact of religious believers throughout history. Religion poisons everything. So that even if God did exist, that should be bad news for you because God is some totalitarian dictator and mind torturer and that's not the kind of being that you want to be real. And so for many Aussies, deep down in the psyche, something in the waters of the culture has shifted the, the, the ground where they think that it would actually be bad news if God were real rather than good news. And so what is going to be able to turn that around? 
the goal ultimately of learning to be able to give a meaningful answer, having good reasons why we believe what we believe, is not so that people would look at how smart we are and think, wow. It's so that people would be able to see how good God is. That right thinking about God would actually lead to a right response to God that would lead to worship of God. And so what we're really trying to seek is to be able to offer him as real and relevant. And and given the misunderstandings of God and the gospel that are out there because of much of the new atheist rhetoric, what I think is the most important thing for us to lead with is not reasons why we believe what we believe, but actually just to retell the story of what we believe. Apologetics must be in service to the gospel. Most people, given the kind of faith structure of our culture, are almost completely unaware of the big story of the Bible. They don't know many of the Bible characters. They certainly don't know how the Bible holds together. They don't know that the Bible is a story rather than just a series of random commands, as though it's some kind of archaic lore. And so what I've found to be most helpful in being able to share faith with people is to be able to learn to tell the Christian story afresh. And I wonder if I was to get a few of you to volunteer here tonight, and I put you on the spot and handed you the microphone and said, in two minutes, would you be able to tell me the Christian story from Genesis to Revelation? How do you think that would go? Anyone feeling really confident? Now, I actually do this quite a bit. And, and what I've found uh, with young people, it's part of the discipleship. Every week I get them to do this. Tell me the Christian story in two minutes from Genesis to Revelation. And the first time they try, usually after about two minutes, they're choking on their words. It's like they've put a Bible in a blender, blended it, drank it, then regurgitated it up. You're getting all kinds of strange notions and religious language, and it's just being vomited back upon you. And usually they're stuck somewhere in the Garden of Eden with a talking snake and realizing, hey, if I was chatting to a secular person right now, this would not be going well. Uh, I don't think what I'm saying is helpful. But the reason why I get them to do that is, even though the first time it may go disastrously, the more and more they start practicing, and not a script, but for themselves naturally learning to tell the story of a God who created us for good and creating us for relationship with him, to love him and love each other and to care for the planet, and how intrinsic to the capacity to love is a certain kind of moral freedom, either to trust God and his moral boundaries or to break faith with God. And by going against God's moral boundaries, by misusing our freedom, humans became broken, damaged by evil, and the world did as well. Our relationship to God was broken. We lost knowledge of what God is like. Our relationship to each other was fractured so that all kinds of relational challenges play out. And this is the current situation where we see suffering and evil coming from in the world, a corruption of God's good design. But God didn't want to leave us that way, and so he came down to earth himself, God becoming human in Jesus of Nazareth, to reveal again exactly what God is like and what it would be like to live with God, to follow God's purposes for our life, and ultimately, though, to accept upon himself the consequences of our evil, which is to die in our place, to face that punishment. And by dying in our place and then overcoming death by resurrecting three days later, Jesus showed that our separation from God, our leaning towards death, it doesn't have to be permanent. It can be reversed. 
that we can be forgiven and have a new relationship with God and that we can be restored to the purpose that he always had for human beings, to love God, love each other, and to care for the planet and to spread the message of what Jesus has done to be able to do this. And that's the responsibility of the church, of Christians now, to be able to be like we were always meant to be, becoming more and more like Jesus and to spread this message, ultimately knowing that one day Jesus will return to set everything right to finally bring an end to evil, to wrap it up with a final judgment, exile all evil from God's good creation so now there will be no more suffering, crying, pain or mourning anymore for the old order of things has passed away. He's coming to make all things new. And the question is, do you want to have that eternal life with God? Something along those lines. It'll be different every time you tell it because new things will come out or fresh things. Maybe the person you're chatting to, you know where a barrier is for them. But just becoming so familiar with the Christian story that you can wander through the broad images. And I um, uh, have, over the last 10 years, been using this sort of framework of five scenes from the big story of being created for good, of becoming damaged by evil, of being restored for better, sent together to heal again, knowing that Jesus will return to set everything right. And by becoming conversant with the Christian story, reminding people why this would be good news if it's true, it's because it actually answers the deepest questions that people are asking right now. What does it mean to be human? Whether it's the beginning of life or the end of life, conversation on abortion and euthanasia, whether it's questions around human rights and individual dignity, around freedom and rationality and human consciousness, morality and conscience, all of this is explained in the first scene of Genesis 1, being made in God's image for good. And everything that that entails as to what the Christian story bequeaths to all of us, the dignity that it grants to us, it makes so much sense of who we are as human persons in a way that the secular story can't. Or why is it that our world is so fractured and broken? Why are people turning in upon themselves? Why are we selfish and motivated reasons, looking after mine and my own tribe rather than caring for the global community? All of this is explained in the second scene damaged by evil, where rather than loving God and loving each other, instead we've curved inwards and become selfish. This is the great line of the reformers. Or the third scene, where is God? How is God going to deal with the evil? All of the big questions that people ask, you can actually pin on any one of these five scenes in a way that sheds incredible light on the kind of longings and pursuits that people have right now. So I think it's an incredibly valuable thing for us, first to be able to retell the Christian story. The best defense is a good offense. And I'm tired of defending bad caricatures of Christianity. If you tell the story right, most of the heavy lifting is done because people start to see a reframed vision of God. God framed through the lens of the Christian story. And all of a sudden people say, oh, if that's what God's like, that's actually something that I would want. You're not longer fighting against that motivated reasoning or that sort of shadow from the new atheist thinking. So this is why I say apologetics must always be in service to the gospel itself. Number two, um, apologetics must be recognized as something that's deeply spiritual. There is a sad caricature um, where people tend to think that apologetics is elite ivory tower academic stuff where it's the elite philosophers that do it. It's those champions that we send out into the arena of ideas. And all of us Christians cheer from the stands while one of our champions fights on stage and smashes down the atheist in a logic battle. Uh, That's not what apologetics is primarily about at all. In fact, I think apologetics is one of the most neglected areas of spiritual warfare in the church. 
Because according to the New Testament, the greatest place where spiritual warfare is happening in the life of a believer isn't up there in some unseen realm. It's actually right in here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, it it frames it in this way. The Apostle Paul says in verse 3 that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They're not worldly, but they are mighty to tear down strongholds. And then he talks about what these demonic strongholds are. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and bring it in obedience to Christ. It's bad thinking. It's arguments. It's pretensions set up against the knowledge of God that are a form of doing spiritual warfare, correcting thinking, tearing down arguments, taking our thoughts captive. This is his vision for what this is. Likewise, in Jude 1.4, where Jesus' half-brother is describing, I wish I could write to you, my fellow Christians, on a bunch of nice things, on our common salvation. Let's talk about all the good things that we have because we believe in Jesus. But he said, instead, because of this present moment, I find it necessary to urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend for it. That's a, that's a warfare imagery. <laughs> It's literally the contender, you know. In the red ring, we have this. In the blue ring, we have this. We actually have to be doing the hard work of fighting for the truth of the Christian story in our own minds as well in the minds of the people around us. This is an act of spiritual warfare. In fact, the entire New Testament frames and the broader biblical story is framed around do we believe the truth or do we believe the lie? Back in the Garden of Genesis, the truth that God, our Heavenly Father, created us for good and he set the moral boundaries for our existence that would lead to our flourishing if we follow them. Do we believe the truth that God is good and trust his moral boundaries? Or do we believe the lie that God's actually just holding out on you? Did God really say, oh no, he's only saying that because he doesn't want you to reach out and touch the fruit and so become like him, knowing good and evil. He's holding out on you. He's not really trustable. Do we believe the truth or do we live the lie? And this is the constant war all the way through the entire line of the Bible. And this is the same in the minds of our friends and our neighbors now. Do they believe the truth that God is good, a loving heavenly father seeking to restore the relationship with his prodigal earthly kids? Or will they believe the lie that God is just some cosmic overlord who is there waiting to zap you with a lightning bolt from Mount Olympus as soon as you screw up? Or, you know, Chris Hemsworth going to come and smack you down with Thor's hammer. Do we believe the truth or do we believe the lie? Apologetics is an act of spiritual warfare. It needs to be understood as such that good thinking about God, whether for the believer or for someone who's a secular person, is an imperative thing for us to be strengthening in our weakness. Number three, and this is starting to get a little bit more practical now. Apologetics must be seen and not just heard. Um, We live at a time right now where the credibility of the church in Australia is at an all-time low. That the biggest obstacle for Aussies taking Christianity seriously is is Christians. Um, When you look at McCrindle's research back in 2017, what are the top belief blockers, the things that stop Christians from being able to explore faith in Jesus? Church abuse and hypocrisy. Christians saying one thing and then doing another, claiming to be one thing publicly when really privately there's something else, as well as then the horrendous history of people who should have been 
shepherds and spiritual safe havens instead abusing their position to do evil to kids. And these have just robbed the gospel of its credibility because Christians have always been the ones that were meant to frame God right. It may be unfair given that our story is people are broken and that's why we need a savior. And it may not be right that you should judge a philosophy on its abuse, but it's still what people default to doing. If God isn't real enough to you that it's changing you, then why should I take it seriously? They only want to know about it if it ultimately actually works. And so one of the things we really need to do is make sure that the greatest apology that comes out in addition to the Christian story is actually the moral vision, the moral lives, the transformation of people who claim to follow Jesus. Things have to change. (laughs) In 1 Peter 3.15, one of the most popular verses in around the area of apologetics, you'll hear apologists cite it all the time. It says, but in your hearts set apart Christ the Lord as holy. And always be prepared to give an answer, to make a defense, an apologia, to anyone who asks you to give the reasons for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. The entire beginning of this series of verses on how to do public Christianity, how to share your faith publicly, it begins with this. Set apart Christ the Lord as holy. Make sure that your entire life orbits around the gravity of Jesus. (laughs) Um, The holiness of God, biblically speaking, is um, probably something that's best described using the metaphor of the sun. It's something that's so intense and real and powerful and raw that if you come close to it and you're not made of the right kind of stuff, it burns you up. (laughs) And so when we're talking about setting apart Christ as holy, it's saying that your witness, how to go about sharing Jesus, actually begins with your worship what you center your life around, what everyone is going to see bleeding out of you naturally, that really matters. Jesus didn't actually leave open the idea of a demarcation between the message and the messenger. In Matthew 5, you were the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. In Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses. Again, not an optional extra whether or not we're a good witness or a bad witness, that's the question, but the Christians will be the witness. The messenger often frames the credibility itself of the message, and God's love is the greatest apologetic for the truth of Christianity. The vast majority of people who become Christians, some of them are one by the mind, others one by the heart. The vast majority are one because they meet people who really love Jesus and that love rubs off on them and is something that draws them in in a way that they desperately want. And so for us, in order to be prepared to give an answer to whoever asks of us, we actually have to first be living questionable lives that make people want to ask those questions in the first place. And so this idea of apologetics being seen and not heard, the church, people's experience of Christians, should be the thing that makes them hungry to know what it is that we believe. Um, If that's challenging to us, then maybe that's something we need to to think on. If people aren't asking us questions about why we believe what we believe, maybe it's because our lives aren't all that different from the other people around us. Um, And that should be just a moment for pause and diagnosis and perhaps repentance and prayer, just to come before God and saying, am I really living as Jesus invited me to? Because people ask a lot of questions of Jesus. Whatever they saw drew them towards God. And if there's nothing similar in terms of my own life, why? What's the block? 
Number four, um, apologetics must listen as well as speak. Uh, If you trace across the gospel stories, one of the things you'll see that Jesus does remarkably well is that he never gave the same answer twice whenever he was asked questions. Every single one of his interactions is unique. It's why they're so memorable is because he always shapes his response to the person that he's speaking to and, and ask why. He always addresses the questioner rather than just the question. Behind every question I've ever been asked is a questioner. And the questioner is far more complex than the questions that they're actually asking. They're a person that's made up of their beliefs and their experiences, perhaps their hurts as well, their assumptions. And so what you'll see Jesus doing in these interactions is he's brilliant at digging beneath the surface. He listens with far more than just his ears. Now, what's really annoying about Jesus, in my mind, is there are so many cases where in the Gospels it'll say, and Jesus, knowing their hearts, said, why are you arguing about the yeast of the Pharisees? Why are you arguing about this? And why are you arguing about that? Or why do you have so little faith? Jesus just had this ability because God enabled him to, Holy Spirit gifted him to, he used his omniscience to, whatever it is. Jesus had the ability to see what was going on the inside of people in a way that I just don't. And so it frustrates me. I wish I had that capacity. But he also modeled to, you know, weak little puny humans like me exactly how to go about digging deeper. And he did this by asking questions. In fact, on 157 occasions in the gospel, Jesus asks a question. Of the various times Jesus was posed a question, many of the times he never actually gave an answer. In fact, there's one case where a young guy in Mark chapter 10 comes up to him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, at this point, nearly every Christian I know would feel like they've just hit the evangelistic lottery and would pull out four spiritual laws or two ways to live. And what you really need to do is get off the throne of your life and put Jesus on that throne. Or you need to take your hands off the wheel and let Jesus drive and you get in the boot so that you can't take... All of this kind of thing. We would have pre-prepared, ready-made Roman roads to be able to walk people down. And yet Jesus doesn't do that at all. He responds with what almost seems like a peripheral question. Why do you call me good? None is good but God alone. But notice what Jesus is actually doing in this interaction. See, what he's doing by posing that question is saying, are you just trying to be buttering me up by calling me a good teacher? Is that your intention? You know, In the same way you're trying to endear yourself to the teacher, hoping that they'll be kinder in the kind of mark or grade that they give to you. Is that your intention? Or, by me saying none is good but God alone, are you actually recognizing that when you call me good teacher, you are recognizing me as God? Because if you are saying that I'm God, are you willing then to receive what I'm about to say to you? Because Jesus came at him with a really hard teaching. Perhaps he let him get away with the idea that he's followed all the commandments since he was a boy, right? Good luck. He let him get away with that one. But then he said, one thing you lack, sell everything you have and give it to the poor if you be perfect and then come and follow me. Why? Because this guy was already worshipping a God and it was called money. And it says that the man walked away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus says it's difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven because they have to choose what's most important to them. Will they use God to get money or will they use money to honor God? It's the choice. 
And so Jesus is using a question to draw out a percussive effect on the guy to make him consider, when I'm coming to Jesus, what am I actually willing to receive from him? And this is what you'll see again and again and again. You know, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Bring me a denarius. Whose face is on this? Caesar. Well, then render unto Caesar that which is Caesar. He always asks these questions that just shift the culture of what's happening. In James 1.19, Jesus' half-brother invites us to be slow to speak and quick to listen. He quotes Proverbs. In fact, in the wisdom of God, we can speak in one direction, but we have surround sound hearing. (laughs) Two ears, only one mouth. And if that isn't a metaphor for the fact that we should speak at least half the amount as what we listen in a useful conversation with someone, it's by asking good questions and then learning to listen well that we get to know the questioner behind the question. And therefore, like Jesus, how is it that we tailor a response that's going to be useful in actually hitting on where their heart is right now? Now, this is not something that, you know, you come to a night like tonight... Two minutes on the microwave, boom, and then ding, and you're a great conversationalist. It's the kind of thing that you grow in over time. I think conversation is a discipline, and we're not one we're awesome at in the modern world. But to be able to help, um, I've got a file that I'll give you the link to tonight. And in there, there is a A4 page PDF of helpful questions for God conversations. Um, some of these questions I just stole straight out of Jesus from the Gospels. He's got some really good ones in there. Other ones are ones that I've learned to use over time as well that I've found to be really, really helpful. But questions like this, I'm not sneezing, that's not the question. Although you can see whether they say God bless you and that might give you a little bit of an insight. But questions like, you know, what do you believe about life? What is it that you most want to get out of life? How have you come to believe what you believe? In what ways over your life have you felt let down either by God or by Christians? Uh, Has anyone ever explained to you how knowing God has made a difference in their life? Have you ever heard any of the evidence why Christians believe what they believed? Have you ever had an experience that made you think that God might be real? Or perhaps if you're being a little bit more edgy, what actually holds you back from being able to trust in Jesus? Um, These are questions that lead into fascinating conversations where if you just listen, resist the urge to jump in and say something to correct the first misconception that they have, but just to pause it out and to listen, I think you'll be able to learn a ton that'll be really helpful in having follow-up conversations from there. And by listening well to them, you earn the place to be able to speak and be listened to as well. Now, notice I've said four things thus far and have said absolutely nothing about saying anything. (laughs) So this idea of being able to give a helpful response or a meaningful answer or becoming all things to all people in our secular age is a lot about the right kind of posture and being the right kind of person and getting to the right position in a conversation where we can learn to provide helpful answers. But at some point, um, given the multiplicity of questions out there, at some point apologetics must actually give good answers. A Sunday school faith will not survive the skeptical world. If we continue only to have small pad answers to some of the most complex realities of life and experience, then it's just not going to make it in the modern world. And in the same way that in any other arena of life, our understandings would grow with time. 
so too the kind of thinking and responses, whether we're talking about how I answer my four-year-old when he asks me why do bad things happen will be different to how I answer him when he's eight, will be different to how I answer him when he's 12, will be different to how I answer him when he's 17. We continue to grow the complexity of the answer. You teach simple numbers to a five-year-old. You teach addition to an eight-year-old. You teach multiplication to a 10-year-old. You teach calculus to a 16-year-old. Our theology, our understanding of God has to be growing with time as well if it's going to be useful. And so how do we start learning to give useful answers. I wanted to give you a a few practical tips on this. Um, My encouragement would be to begin with good study. When you come across a question, and there are probably about 10 out there that I get everywhere um, that are just the recurring questions, you know, uh, sexual ethics in the modern world. So whether we're talking gay, transgender, how does Christian story feed into these things? That's just a, a constant culturally raised question. But the ones that have been more constant, like a question I'm answering tomorrow morning at at the church service here, where is God? Why doesn't God seem more obvious if he wants me to believe in him? Or why hasn't God lived up to my expectations in answering the kind of prayers that I thought he would want to say yes to? Uh, Where is God? The hiddenness of God or suffering and evil in the world? Or why trust the Bible when there are so many different religious kind of texts? Or hasn't science disproved Christianity or the biblical story? So these sorts of questions, whenever you come across one of these, just go and look for the best voices. Um, Again, in the resource packet that I'll put up here for you, there is a recommended reading list of people, whether from our ministry or beyond, that you can either jump online, listen to on YouTube, or get their books in the particular areas. Um, RZAM actually has an entire 12-week course in worldview and apologetics that's designed to help Christians know how to better be ready to give an answer, and it's phenomenally helpful. It's got Ravi and John Lennox and Alistair McGrath and Os Guinness and a bunch of Christian heavyweights speaking on their best content in a 15- or 20-minute uh, kind of TED Talk-style lecture, and then you get all of their notes, all of their content, all of their quotes. It's just fantastic for you and that's just 12 weeks to do two or three hours a week online super easy but it helps get you ready by studying some of the best voices out there and speaking to these questions um let failure teach you um so there are a ton of times where people have asked me a question and i haven't really known what to say so i thought i'd fumble through an answer rather than say actually i don't know about that one that's a great question i'm going to honor you by taking some time to think about and get back to you It's what I should have done and is actually the right thing to do. Instead, I tried to fake it till I made it. And uh, I I was unhelpful in a lot of the answers that I've given. And and been in this doing youth and young adults ministry now for over 10 years. Uh, There have been a lot of ways that I answer questions that now I regret. Not even because the content of what I said is wrong, but because of how they were processing what they needed. It wasn't for me to give them a hard answer. It was actually to help them do the journey of finding the answer themselves so that they're more able to do that right in the future. So every time you feel like you walk away and you go, oh, I should have said this, which is nearly every conversation we have, right? I wish I knew that 10 minutes ago. Let that be a stepping stone to go think about it clearer and then come back better ready when someone asks that question next time. In my iPhone, I actually have uh, an entire category in the, in the simple notes thing. So if you go into my notes, there is a category called answers. And in there, there are all these different themes that people usually bring up. You know, so sexuality and suffering and hypocrisy and hell and hiddenness and science and prayer. And, and every time I get an asked a question that I've never answered before, I write it in there. 
and I go away and I think about it and I put down there just two or three dot points and something that I think could be a useful way forward in a conversation so that well, before I do big Q&As in secular spaces and university campuses, I'll go through and I'll, I'll read through that and think, oh, I'm just refreshing my mind on some of the things that would be useful. You've just got a treasure trove that you're building over time so that you're more ready to give an answer to anyone who asks of you. Um, third thing, maybe don't attack stereotypes. Um, it's really not helpful if we're wanting to be taken seriously and people not stereotypal straw man Christianity, don't do the same in return. Don't pick the worst expression of atheistic materialism and pr- pretend that that's representative of what someone else believes. Always try and um, interact with the best version of the alternative perspective. So if there was a professor in here who advocated that position, not whether you know it in as much technical detail, but would they feel at least well represented by you so that with charity you've presented their their view reasonably well. Again, the us versus them mentality is just not going to be helpful for young people growing up at all because we're not out there to see other people as our enemies. Other people are hopefully our long-lost brothers and sisters whom we're seeing to be one. They're They're the ones that we're meant to love and engage with. The battle is not against flesh and blood, but instead against the powers, the principalities, the thinking, the pretensions, the false philosophies and ideas that hold them captive. And so just don't attack stereotypes. Um, Don't overstate. Uh, In the world of apologetics, you will find incredibly arrogant and proud people all over the place uh, who, when they present things, present it like it's a knockdown argument that is foolproof in the way it's presented. And if you don't believe, you're an idiot for not believing it. You just can't see the logic of the case. Uh, I just think that's unhelpful. Belief doesn't function that way. The way that God has revealed himself doesn't function that way. I think God has made himself known to every person individually that we can't necessarily deny that. But that there is something that obscures that or makes us mistrust that sense. And so there are, most of the arguments for God are not, they're not, well, none of them are proofs. There is no such thing as a proof for God. They're evidences, they're clues in the language of Alistair McGrath. They're clues that perhaps point towards God. And so be humble in the kind of claims that, that we make that leans well into being people of the cross. Um, number five is when you're talking through these questions, particularly if you don't know, the goal is not to convince the person of what you believe so much as rather than looking face-to-face as opponents, to come around and shoulder-to-shoulder say, well, let's think about this as clearly as we can together. You may teach me something in this conversation, and maybe I've got something to teach you, but we're actually going at truth together. We're trying to make sense of what seems to make the most sense here. And the reason being, in so fostering just a pursuit of what is true, you're actually inadvertently doing the work of discipleship. Why? Because what Jesus said was that everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. In his famous conversation with Pilate in John chapter 18, 19, this is exactly his claim. I came to bear witness to the truth. What is truth? Pilate says, and with that he walks out. But Jesus knows. Anyone who's really on the side of truth listens to me. Anyone who seeks will ultimately find in that regard. And so by fostering, hey, maybe just be open to the idea that God exists. Maybe be open to the idea that Christianity is true, but let's come at this together and explore and see where we end up. That actually creates a dynamic of relationship where you're together in this. uh, And that opens people up for a much more fruitful, long-term kind of conversations in the way that that plays out. Um, And and number six... um, more than anything over time, I've become convinced that Jesus really is the best thing going for Christianity. Um, there is a huge amount that the entire big Christian story furnishes. So, you know, there, 
uh, in the last 10 years, just now, I've chronicled 12 uh, major pieces that have been written, whether books or huge extended articles, from Christians, from Indian philosophers, from atheistic or, or skeptical uh, historians, who are chronicling that the best of Western civilization traces back to its Judeo-Christian heritage. You know, guys like Tom Holland or Vishal Mangalwadi, uh, even guys today like Jordan Peeps and the Canadian psychiatrist, they're looking at the Christian story and saying, this is the only way, I think, in terms of believing at least that God is real. Even if you don't know that, living as though God is real, it's the only way to make sense of our psychological structures in a way that leads to human flourishing. There's just so much, I think, that the Christian story furnishes, but most people are warmed by Jesus of Nazareth. And in fact, it's so funny that they have a negative concept of what God is like. But Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Colossians speaks about him being the exact representation of the invisible God, the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1, 2, and 3 makes the exact same point. God whispered through the prophets, but now he's revealed himself fully in the radiance of the sun. And so there's this beautiful kind of picture where the more and more you're pointing people to Jesus in the conversation, I think that, again, he does most of the heavy lifting in helping them come, come to faith. Um, and that was my story. Uh, I came to believe in God and believe in Jesus through reading the Gospels. I had a ton of questions about whether or not God could be real, given the experience of human suffering in the world. But the more and more I read the four Gospels, so I got and read them in order, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, by the end of John's Gospel, something in me had changed, and I knew that I believed. In fact, I read that exact verse, John 20, 31. You know, and Jesus did many other things in the presence of his disciples that are not recorded in this book, but these things I have written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing have life in his name. I got to the end and just realized, man, I think I believe this now. Uh, and it was because I found Jesus so compelling. Didn't answer all of my deepest questions. I still walked in and kept asking, kept searching, kept reading, kept studying. But it's sore enough to be able to take the, take the step that, God, if this is what you're like, I've felt you, I've experienced you now in this, but if this is what you're like, I've seen enough that I know that I can trust you. When God is dying for me on a cross, that is enough of an image of a God who loves me and is for my good that I can trust him for what I don't yet know. And I've just been building that understanding over time. So in most of the answers that I give, whether we're talking problems with texts in the Old Testament or even questions around science, uh, I jump straight to the relationship between Jesus and the universe. So the Bible makes some pretty crazy claims about Jesus' involvement with the universe. Colossians chapter 1, you know, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And so this image of saying, wow, the Bible makes the crazy claim that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, in the, it was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him. That Jesus is the one that is responsible for the creation of the universe. Now, does that claim stack up? That <laughs> the universe has some weird relationship with the supernatural divine mind, the Word of God. Is there something that points towards that being real? And I kind of jump from there. I'm always trying to connect people back to Jesus. Why? Because I'm really confident that the more and more they jump into the gospel stories and read about him for themselves, that that is exactly where God has promised to reveal himself. And that the scriptures themselves are imbued with power as people read them and are enlivened by the Holy Spirit. And that that's where people come to encounter him. So the more I can talk about Jesus and the answers I'm giving to anything, the more I'm inviting people to look at God, to make sense of God and reality through the lens of Jesus, of Nazareth. And I've just found that that's been 
been hugely helpful. Um, so just before we jump into Q&A, where you're free to ask any question in the world, um, let me give you just a few more um, practical encouragements randomly. So the question, where can I begin? Um, number one, I would encourage you, and did this last night with some parents, is just to start with Scripture. Um, if you're not familiar yourself, I would start as much as you can memorizing Scripture being able to tell the scripture story, doing the two-minute gospel kind of thing. Uh, the, the New Testament describes the scriptures as the sword of the Spirit. <laughs> but it also talks about the precision that's needed and how to use it well. You know, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to dividing soul and spirit joints and marrow. In other words, it's something that needs to be used with a surgical strike. You can hack around with a sword and do all kinds of damage, but if you're going to do the kind of surgery that the living and active Word of God is speaking about there, it actually requires having a command of the Scriptures, some, some significant training. Even the Roman makira, the double-edged sword that the, um, the Roman legions would use, it was a short sword, um, and it was nearly unusable. So in a battlefield, it's messy, right? There are people, bodies flying everywhere. They would depend upon the lines and the way it works, but if a soldier fell down and and a, Rome, uh, a German barbarian would pick up this double-edged sword, they're more likely to get cut by it and hurt themselves than they are to do damage to anyone else. Because the way that the lines worked, you, in the way that they had to learn to protect themselves, it actually took incredible training for a Roman to wield the sword well without it damaging them or the person next to them. I think scripture, it's not un, uh, unreasonable then to draw the, that metaphor out and say, to use the Bible well actually requires some training, some thinking as to how it can be helpful given our skeptical climate in pointing people to Jesus. Because the way I often see the Bible used in the public space is to do harm. People try and take a stand for Christian truth in a way that ends up just alienating people for whom the Christian story doesn't make any sense. Um, and so just being thoughtful in that, but starting with Scripture so that you've got there. Also, it's, it's just good for you. Um, one of my favorite lines from C.S. Lewis, who spent a lot of time defending the Christian story, is he said, a man cannot always be defending the truth. There must come a time to feed on it. Just to be able to feed on it for, our, for ourselves. Um, the, if the, the man does not survive on bread alone from, from every word that comes in the mouth of God, if Jesus was right when he quoted that in Matthew 4 and the temptation in the wilderness, then there is a kind of spiritual anemia that can come by being too distant from God's words. And so for us to be in communion with God and hearing from God and learning his words and how it speaks to the big questions, I think is, is hugely helpful. Um, number two, I, I'd encourage you to actually just read a few good books uh, in the kind of big questions that people are asking. In our team, there's a ton, I think, of really useful ones. Um, one of my colleagues, Amy, she wrote a book uh, called Why Trust the Bible that answers 10 common objections and not in a overconfident, uh, overstated kind of way, but just exploring things like, well, do we really have the, the original text of the New Testament or has been corrupted by generations and generations of copies? Things like, isn't uh, the Bible anti-women? Um, things like, uh, aren't the ethics uh, of the Bible outdated or outmoded? And so these sorts of tough questions that people will come when it comes to the Bible, I think is great. Um, Vince Vitale, uh, one of my mates and another colleague um, who wrote, co-wrote a book with Ravi called Why Suffering? where they give eight different responses to the question of evil and suffering in the world, I think is incredibly useful. Um, C.S. Lewis's classic Mere Christianity, I think, is still indispensable for good ideas and metaphors and stories and ways of coming at it. Um, God's Crime Scene is one by... Um, uh, 
cold case detective that became a Christian, J. Warner Wallace, where he actually frames the entire argument for God's existence through the lens of uh, giving evidence in a court of law for the existence of God. And so eight different lines of evidence where he brings in expert witnesses and the available scientific understanding, things like consciousness, rationality, things like the origins or fine-tuning of the universe, the development of biological life first on the planet, that sort of thing. Um, so you can get uh, all of those in the resource packet that, uh, that I'll send to you just as a recommended reading list. Um, number three, I would really encourage you to take another step and get some more training. Um, the ASEAN Academy program um, online is fantastic. Uh, otherwise, there's a nine-week DVD course that you can maybe do with people um, in a small group or something like that or by yourself called um, Everyday Questions where it does some of the content from the online program but, but not all of it. Um, so I really encourage you to kind of get some, some more training under your belt. But the biggest way that I've learned, um, having come from a world where I wasn't a Christian, then becoming a Christian, then wanting to share my faith and answer people's questions, the biggest way that I've learned is just having lots and lots of conversations with people. Um, you get better at this by doing it and making mistakes and then going and thinking, man, that wasn't really helpful that time. I don't think I framed God helpfully for that person. Um, so how do I help frame God right next time? The more and more you have these conversations, you just are like stretching a conversation muscle so it gets you more useful. Um, and number five, just think about inviting people um, to the right kind of opportunities and events. So something like tomorrow morning. Uh, I know it's a church service and that can be alienating for some people, but my, my heartbeat in tomorrow is actually to tackle, I think, I think the hardest question, um, really, uh, that why we don't see more of God in the world or more of God in the lives of people. Um, I think it's maybe over time eclipsing the suffering and evil question. Certainly from a philosophical point of view, um, it's becoming more difficult. So um, those sorts of opportunities where something seriously real is being addressed, and skeptics would come and say, yeah, if God wanted me to believe in him, then he should have made his existence more believable. Perfect opportunity to bring someone along to an, a sort of an event like that, or a cool movie showing, or a discussion group, or a pub event, or something like that. Just explore good opportunities to be inviting people along and to be exploring that kind of stuff. All right, that's been me for nearly an hour. So um, let's have maybe just a couple of minutes break for you to stretch your legs and, uh, and to relax a little bit. Uh, and then we'll come back in a few minutes. We can just do some Q&A. Hello. All right, thanks, everyone. Well, the police have been called. And so Mark is going to be uh, carrying the, uh, the microphone around just so you can ask your question. Everyone can hear it. Um, part of communication is just being heard well. Um, so... We'll, uh, we'll go on uh, for, uh, up, up until 9. I'm happy to go right to the end. If you need to leave at any time, please do. I will not at all be offended. I understand it's late on a Saturday night and uh, beds call to you like a siren used to call to the sailors in the ancient world. Um, so, so please do feel free to leave at any time that you need to. But this next 40 minutes then is just a space really for you to ask any questions about material either I presented tonight or just to ask some questions more broadly about the kind of things that you're getting asked about and how would you respond to that? So if there are particular questions that you came hoping to hear and have a conversation around, please do. Um, I'm not actually uh, all that against people uh, um, making comments as well. I know in bigger Q&As, people just like make sure you keep it to a question. If you've got something you think you really want to feed in and, um, and uh, if there's a bit more preamble to get to a question, I'm really happy to hear that as well. So uh, with that in mind, no one likes asking the first question. So who would like to ask the second question? Thanks, Mark. So we'll go here, and then we'll go up the back to that gentleman at the back. The church brand has been severely compromised because of the, you know, the Royal Commission, the, the damage that individuals have done and created a bad name. Mm. And many people use that as the hypocrisy and you know, 
So what's your best answer when you try and defend the indefensible? Mm, I think it's a really good question. Thanks. Um, thanks, thanks for that, yeah. Um, but it's completely understandable too. And uh, um, it would depend upon my emotional state, I think, how my answer would, would play out. Um, but this is an area that I just, uh, I find really difficult to grapple with emotionally. Um, so we, and, and not for personal reasons, my, my background story is, is um, you know, has nothing in terms of contact with negativity in the church, but it's just one that for me is unconscionable. Um, and so I, I struggle uh, just to think about it. I remember the first time I watched the movie Spotlight, uh, which if you haven't seen the film is sort of um, a retelling of the true story about how the Boston Globe investigative team, the Spotlight team, uh, first happened upon a few of the stories from uh, a, a local priest um, and the accusations that were made and how it was all hushed up. And they were the ones that went on to do a big investigation over a long period and turned out that actually 6% of Catholic priests in their diocese had, uh, had committed horrible heinous acts with kids and would just be moved on from place to place over time. And I was on a plane when I watched this the first time. I just remember there being there, weeping at points where you, know, you just can't imagine not only that these things are done, but then that with full knowledge of the hierarchies of various churches, you know, these things are just pushed under, trying to protect the name of the church or the reputation of Christ while just destroying the lives of so many people. Um, so the, where, where I n- normally would go with this is just talk about how God reacts to it. Um, no one spoke more scorching words against hypocrisy than Jesus of Nazareth. And they're never towards prostitutes, they're never towards divorcees, they're never towards thieves, they're, never, they're always towards religious leaders who should have done differently. Uh, and so he uses the language of being whitewashed tombs. You've been renovated on the outside to look pretty, but inwardly you're, you're a moral corpse, um, you're dead. Or he said it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and to be thrown into the ocean than to have caused one of these least of those who believes in me to stumble. Um, I think those are heavy words in terms of the warning of Jesus. And he warned that judgment would come to those who bore religious spots of authority and it would come in severe ways. And um, maybe one of the things that comforts me actually is the knowledge that no one's going to get away ultimately with anything, that God is going to deal with evil. Um, The thing I find really challenging in all of this, though, is part of the the biggest hurt for those who have been um, harmed and abused is when there is no opportunity, either because of the institution denying for so long and sweeping it away, or because of then um, the chosen ways of reacting, that there's no ultimate escape or opportunity for healing. And one of the most difficult things that I think Jesus actually also speaks into this situation, how God reacts, is he doesn't just promise to deal with those who do the evil. He also turns to the victim, and he speaks about how he wants to bring healing. And I think the hardest teaching of Jesus of Nazareth, pans down, is his teaching on forgiveness. And I think it's, in some ways, um, it's a self-motivated kind of message to receive. Uh, The book of Hebrews talks about this idea that unforgiveness becomes a bitter root that ends up destroying us. Um, Holding on to unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person will die. Um, Unforgiveness itself ends up destroying us from the inside out. And so one of the things that I think Jesus would want to bring is an opportunity to no longer hold on to or harbor the kind of resentment and anger and bitterness that is going to destroy you 
and not actually even affect the person who hurt you, but how to deal with that for yourself so that you can be healed. Uh, and so I, that's a radically different teaching than I think what's being shared. And um, not forgiveness doesn't mean to say what's done is okay. Forgiveness doesn't mean to say that there aren't real-world ramifications for what's been done, legal, fiscal, um, uh, all kinds of ramifications for what's been done. Forgiveness has to do with what we choose to hold on to in terms of our feelings and attitudes towards a person uh, and then the opportunity for, for some kind of reconciliation down the track is largely put on their terms. Forgiveness doesn't mean a, rec- a restoration of trust. You know? So if we understand what forgiveness really means, uh, I think this is something that Jesus actually wants to push people towards for their own sake first as well as then for the broader community as a whole um be something in that arena as for what relationship does evil have with the gospel um i i don't see hypocrisy as being something that undermines the credibility of the christian story um i think it's something we should expect if the christian story is true because the christian story's diagnosis is that every single human person is damaged by evil that we are thoroughly corrupted and that we are capable of doing terrible things particularly if left unchecked um and so encouraging an incredible transparency and accountability of every institution i think is something that's desperately needed in our modern world to be able to put safe balances and guards upon human evil um, but uh, i don't think uh, at any point we should judge christianity upon people's unwillingness to live it um the very fact that we call certain things evil is because we have a sense of what is right. Um, for the fact that we look at that and say it's hypocrisy is because we look at Jesus and say he lived such a profound moral life. He's a luminary that I wish everyone looked like, and it's against him that these guys are exposed. And so Christianity should be judged based upon Jesus, not upon whether people are willing to do it or not. He's always said from the beginning, Jesus, that they who hear my words and put them into practice will be like the wise man who built a house upon the rock. But they that hear my words but don't, then the house is built on sand and then one day it'll collapse. Um, so Christianity is not something that uh, is free of human agency. You have to follow Jesus. And where people haven't, that's where real damage has been done to the church. I think there was one up the back here, and then we'll come over here to you, sir, next. Yeah. So I've been sharing for about 45 years as a street evangelist in apologetics around the Great. world. And so, uh, what I, so what I do, actually i got about seven different areas. I think Ravi has about three or four areas, but, but actually I have seven different areas. And so, but my question to you is like, uh, you say now the Egyptian religion is much older than the Christian religion, so what, what makes your religion better than your your religious your Christian religion is better than the Egyptian religion? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I I kind of understand that. Particularly if you parse that out even further and say there are a whole lot of religions that are even older than Christianity, particularly, um, and uh, and where Judaism fits into that picture. But just because something's older doesn't mean it's necessarily better. And just because something's newer doesn't mean it's necessarily better. When we look at whether or not something's true or not, we look at the merits of the case, what we can actually believe about it. And so in the same way, I think we would be doing better calculus today than we were 
3,000 years ago, or we usually work from different bases of information to be able to explore that. And so my encouragement is whenever we come up against different perspectives, different worldviews, different claims upon reality, everyone has social reasons for believing what they believe. We grew up within a social environment or opportunities to believe that thing. Everyone has psychological reasons for believing what we believe. There's certain motivations why you want to believe it. It makes you feel good or gives you hope for the future or something like this. Everyone has uh, sort of often even religious reasons. Um, we are deeply uh, rooted with attributing authority to certain kinds of people. Um, you know, so almost all human knowledge is based upon authority. We know have, or have uh, empirically verified very little for ourselves, but we just receive it as reliable from other sources all the time. And so some people see the Quran as being a religious authority. Other people see the Bhagavad Gita. Other people will see the Vedas or the Bible. Other people see, you know, Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris, or some people will see your Dave Rubens or Jordan Petersons. People find their person, right, or their place, and they just give it a certain kind of authority to be able to define or make sense of reality for them. We all have this religious dimension to our nature as well. But if everyone has social, psychological, and religious reasons for believing what they believe, whether it's the Egyptian kind of uh, religion, or whether it's other Mesopotamian religions, whether it's Buddhism, Hinduism, whether it's Islam, whether it's Christianity, all of these things, everyone's got those reasons. How then do we adjudicate between which one is actually right? Because given that they all make contradictory claims, they can't all be true at the same time. Either one or none of them is right. And some of them all may have elements of truth, but as to whether or not one actually interprets reality rightly, that's kind of what's on the table. And so to figure that out, we have to go to a different category of reasons. And that, I think, is what what has often been called in worldview philosophy, the kind of uh, uh, philosophical reasons. So you you come at these Christian stories, uh, all these various stories, let's say the Egyptian story versus the Christian story. Can they both make sense of everything that we experience? Completeness. Can they make sense of all of the data that's out there? So whether we're talking scientific data, psychological data, human experience, spiritual reality, all of it, can they all at least explain all the phenomena that's out there to explain? Number two, can they explain that coherently, or do they make claims within the stories that contradict? This is why, you know, are there philosophical problems with the Trinity, as Muslims would claim, or does the Bible contradict itself? These would actually be reasonably big problems for the Christian, because it means that the story itself is contradictory, and, you know, something that's self-contradictory is not worth believing. Um, And then number three, does it correspond to reality? Have you got actually positive reasons to believe that this is true? Not just a convenient explanation, but positive reasons. Because I could make up a philosophy right now that explains everything and that is coherent. For instance, uh, that the universe was just created yesterday and that all of us were implanted with our memories and that the whole thing is just a big computer simulation. Uh, There's no way that this philosophy you could disprove because everything that you would bring to it actually exists in the system itself. Everything would be in the matrix, not outside of the matrix, right? And so it's actually a coherent philosophy. It explains everything in our experience, but there's no way to test whether that's true, right? It seems to run against the evidence that we have. Yeah. 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 I challenge everybody that will go ahead and we'll look at how many miracles did Buddha do? How yeah. many miracles did the Dalai Lama do? Yeah. And then I go to, now let's look at all the prophecies about Muhammad. Yeah. And so what I do, I, I challenge people. And so a lot, a lot of times what I do, you know, so if, when you use your phone, you challenge the ethos. So a lot of times people, they have like a one on one, they share the gospel one on one. Yeah. But what if you were to share with four or five hundred people at the same time? 
what I do. Actually, I use, I use physics with the first two things. I don't go into a philosophy. I go straight into physics. And so the, the biggest god in Australia is the god of evolution. Hmm. And that's why I say, well, that, that's good for you, but this is what I believe in. So if you go into physics first, on street, as a whole, nobody, the last five years, we've been doing that last five years around the world. And so the people, they'll look, they'll, they never come to you and say, oh, well, that's good for you, but I believe in this. They never said, the last five years, they never said it to me because I use physics first. And so it's amazing how the God of evolution, and that's what I think, you know, like with the, with, you know, whether you're going to Bible college, or with a seminary, you know, in America, the 70s, yeah. And it took me 30 years to unlearn all the liberal theology I learned from the seminaries. And so that's why I challenge, you know, like, you know, praise God that people are here. But I challenge the Bible college people, the professors, the PhDs, you know, to really, you know, like, if you could, if you could say within one hour, you could convince somebody who's atheist becoming a Christian, that would change the whole Western society. Yeah, I think what a couple of things you're pointing out I think are, are useful in the sense that um, one is talking about the relevance. And so when someone will say, hey, the God is an option idea, what they usually will do is say that some things that we accept affect everyone, like the physical laws, for instance, or like theories of reality or how we get here as complex human beings. And so science, and let's say evolution as a concept, this is something that either is or isn't true and it affects everyone. But then when it comes to metaphysics, whether we're talking morality or God, this is something that people say, but here's the bend of it doesn't matter really what you believe, it's all optional. You know, the people have these two categories. And I think one of the useful things, perhaps, about talking around science and is there evidence from nature itself that points towards the existence of God or creation coming from God, one of the gifts about this is it helps people realize, oh, whether or not God exists or whether or not Jesus rose from the dead in reality, that isn't just something about whether I want it to be true or not. It's something that either happened or didn't happen. He either exists or he doesn't exist. And that's what makes people realize, oh, I actually have to grapple with finding out what I think on this topic for the first time because this divide seems to have just come up. So I appreciate that point. And um, we had a question here and then we'll come to you, sir. Yeah. Uh, just a bit, uh, a bit of preamble beforehand while well, I'm going to ask yeah, the cool. question. Um, people like um, Attenborough, who popularizes the worldview with our environment being nothing to do with God. It's a, it's a natural phenomena. Um, a discussion thing I was at recently where the guy said, well, our Prime Minister is one of these Bible-believing people that doesn't worry about climate change and, and the environment because mm. one day God's going to fix it. He was being very uh, cynical the way he was saying it. So in all that sort of background, and you mentioned earlier about the importance of us being stewards mm -hmm. a couple of times, yeah. which I agree with, um, how do we as Christians, we've, it's been, the, the whole environmental climate change issue has been hijacked by the secularists. And the Christians have been put to a side as if they're irrelevant in the whole notion of the new heaven, we, there's going to be a new heaven, new earth, so we don't have to worry about it mm -hmm. kind of idea, which I think is a false idea. Mm -hmm. So how do we communicate an effective Christian response to what is one of the biggest issues today in our media and mm. in our schools, and particularly yeah. our young people. Yeah. And they don't see the church as having any irrelevance yeah. to that major issue. I, I, I certainly appreciate the question. There's a lot, of, lot wrapped up in there as well. Um, I get nervous uh, about the idea of um, uh, articulating publicly the Christian response in the sense that, um, yes, I think there is often selective PR 
um, that can be reasonably negative or certain. It's the more pop, uh, extreme voices tend to get media time, right? And so the negative Christian perspectives are often are often heard. Um, I, I bump into that perspective in, in a bunch of places. So it's not it's, that it's not out there. There are uh, probably a lot of Christians that do think, well, you know, Second Peter says the elements are going to be destroyed by fire and God will return to new heaven and new earth. So what what does really matter here? Um, aren't we just triggering end times? And I think that's, you know, as soon as you're not, you're trying to bring about God's ends by not God's means, then we've walked away from actually following the commands of God, which is to steward and care for creation. And the model of how we interact with his world is something that we're going to be held accountable for. Um, but the vast majority of Christians that I know actually care about the environment and are just trying to do their own little bit to, to do good, to reduce their footprint, to think about what are we encouraging and what ways we're getting involved in activism. And I, I, I don't want to articulate a Christian response as though let's re-PR the church. I actually just don't think that's helpful. Let's just be the church and do our thing. And where a, a broader world gives recognition for that, great. Where they don't, fine. You know, It's not our job to effectively try and change everyone's mind about how good Christians are. We shouldn't have to, right? Um, the evidence should be clearly evident to all. And so my, my encouragement on how to, how to do it better would just be to have good conversations about what is a, a Christian's necessary responsibility in this moment. How can we take individual care of God's world as part of our witness of what it means to be God's image bearers? Um, and this is the very thing we're meant to do in the new creation. Part of the reason why Christians are still here, God could use any means he wanted to pass on the Christian story. I think part of the reason why human beings are still here is because we're still becoming like the people we're meant to be in all eternity. So God's goal for us here is to help us become Christ-like. And that's not just a virtue character thing. It's also a vocational thing. If God's goal is in Revelation 21 and 2 that the church will rule and reign with Jesus, that all of the language of heaven is not, hey, go and have 10 mansions, but hey, go and take charge of 10 cities. Okay, that's a pretty big municipal responsibility now for you in terms of governance and care and concern. If we're meant to rule and reign with Jesus, to judge angels, to have that kind of wisdom and care, then what we do in terms of caring for the world here and now is actually preparation model for the kind of people we're meant to be in his new heavens and new earth. Um, so I would just say to Christians, think about individually what, what we're doing and think about as a church, what can we be doing locally and in terms of advocacy and in terms of supporting the right kind of voices that are advocating health helpful responses to the kind of climate situation that we're in, um, rather than throwing grenades in any direction. Um, just get in the business of being earthy, helpful people. And that, over the long haul, I think will do the work of the advocacy side of things. Yeah. Yeah. There was a one here, and then we'll come to you, sir. Yeah. I don't know if i just make a comment, but um, then follow a question. But uh, apologetics, um, and I guess you would, agree with this I guess not everyone's interested in or it's not apt for everyone to use apologetics when trying to share the story of Christ um, I guess because you could have many different ways and people could use a testimony could use a, the, and I would say one thing that could be missing is the story of the Bible mm. that and you mentioned Jordan Peterson before who's been doing series on Genesis to a non-Christian talking to you young non-Christian men and they're getting interested in Genesis and mm. the archetypal stories in that in in the Bible and I think there's a lot of power there as Christians where could be missing the boat of these uh, Jewish stories yeah what do you think about that yeah I mean um I I think it's brilliant so N.T. Wright who um has just actually moved from uh, um 
St. Andrews down to Oxford, and he'll be doing some teaching with our school in Oxford there. Um, he has this brilliant line where he said, the church needs to stop trying to answer 19th century controversies using 16th century language, but needs to get back to the first century world of the Bible to be able to answer 21st century questions. And I just thought it's a brilliant insight. You know, in terms of the pattern of life that Jesus modeled and the story of the Bible, what does that speak to the kinds of questions that people are asking in the 21st century? And the church still is perhaps just too focused on trying the internal theological controversies of the past rather than saying, well, what is it that our story bequeaths into the conversation right now? So take Jordan Peterson. I mean, he, you'll, you'll see him describe the incredible impact that his lectures and message and book and talks are having on young people as he's receiving letters from them who were on the brink of giving up on life or were being destroyed by their experience of life but who have have a renewed hope largely because he's just told them um, what is true in the Old Testament wisdom literature that um, irrespective of whether or not God does or doesn't exist there is a certain substructure that our minds function on that needs belief in God to be able to answer the deepest questions of life, namely being made in his image, that your life is imbued with purpose and meaning, and that there is a right moral grain that if you go with it in terms of relationships and how you act in the world, it will tend to go well from you. But if you go against it, there's going to be all kinds of psychosocial splinters. He, I, I would describe him as a wisdom teacher. He's basically restoring the idea of a God-made universe except from a functional therapeutic point of view rather than a metaphysical necessity kind of point of view. Um, So he's not a gospel guy in the sense of here's how you get healing from Jesus or here's how you get forgiveness with God. But he draws from the resources that the Bible offers in all of these different areas in huge ways. And I think he's doing what is a a massive need given the effect of the secular story, which which has ripped the soul away from humanity. Um, everything that is thick about us that we are made for loving relationships and that's more than neurochemical reactions servicing evolutionary reproduction you know Um, that we have a deep desire for justice and that that's not some relativistic standard that's been you know woven into our dna all of the deepest things about human experience and longing meaning purpose all of these are explained by being made in God's image, but they're ripped away by the secular story. Or they're explained away as being just a byproduct of our psychosocial evolution. Um, and so it flattens their meaning. Uh, it doesn't explain them away. It just doesn't give them the richness of the way that we actually live. And so he's just giving people back what the Bible gave Western civilization for a couple of millennia. And the church should be at the forefront of that. And that's what I meant before by using the story to answer the questions that people are really asking around freedom and what does it mean to be human and sexuality and suffering and meaning and purpose and all of this stuff, I think. The more we can lead with that, um, it'll do a lot of the work. Yeah. 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 Totally. Totally. And again, it's just because people don't know what the Bible is. There's a huge amount of biblical illiteracy. So, you know, part of the gift of now is even though maybe from 30, 35 up, people have hang-ups with the church, the younger generation, they don't understand the sexual ethics thing. It's just a, I don't get that, you know. But beyond that, they know almost nothing about the Christian story and what it means and its implications. And so most of the West is still living off the inheritance of the Judeo-Christian story and how it's framed our thinking for so long. But that inheritance is whittling away as 
the secular story just continues to rise. And that's what people are waking up to now. You know, there, there's that skyrocketing loneliness and depression and anxiety, and people have a sense of nihilism and meaninglessness, but all of a sudden you've got your, international, uh, your um, intellectual dark web guys that are saying, well, how can we restore this sense of purpose? Because it seems without it we're screwed, exactly as Viktor Frankl kind of predicted. Um, and it's like, well... There is a story that can absolutely make sense of all of this. You may have reasons why you don't believe it yet, but let's talk about those, you know, rather than just write it off. Yeah. Uh, so there was one. Uh, oh, there was one. Sorry. Yeah. Here, sir. And then, then we'll jump here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just find um, that um, you know, in your day-to-day life, when you're, uh, I guess, you're trying to sort of witness to people, that um, it's very much uh, hit and miss in the sense that most people are actually not open. So then the question uh, I'd have is, is there a place where people are more open and receptive? Is there a place or is there, is there, is there a way of targeting, targeting those people who are actually open and receptive? You know, or is it just like this mm-hmm. kind of um, Russian roulette kind of process that mm-hmm. it sort of feels like a lot of the time? Mm. I think it's a great question. I mean, um, like traditionally in terms of thinking around uh, worldviews and religious belief, there's been something that's been employed called the Engel scale, which is sort of a negative 10 to positive 10. Zero is kind of like on the fence, don't know where I sit with this. And so they used to classify these categories of people. These are the closed people. These are the open people. These are the, you know, just about to get over the line kind of stuff. I just don't necessarily um, vibe with that uh, myself. So let me, gi- let me give you an example. The, so five years ago, I did a public debate with a guy um, on, the, on the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, and I trotted out all the stuff that I thought was really useful in terms of a minimal and maximal fact approach in 15 minutes. He trotted out, um, you know, Bart Ehrman clone. He was a Bart Ehrman fanboy at the time. So if you're familiar with the New Testament skeptic, um, and so it was, you know, just stole the tie riffs off him. We had a phenomenal conversation in the aftermath, great questions. It was just a really fun night. Um, but we, we sparked, struck up a friendship after that debate and have been hanging out kind of ever since. He's gone from the U.S. the last four years and he's about to finish his Ph.D. at Stanford um, in religious studies, North American religious studies. Uh, we just caught up and, um, like, this guy has been hard and closed and fascinated with religion but not at all a believer in God and I'll never never think that we just caught up last week on Monday night for um, just well he's had two nights in town and uh, and he's come to faith he's become a Christian uh, and it was a coalescence of things. It was, um, you know, some of his re- the studies that he'd been doing and looking about the, na- the, the naturalness or nativeness of religious belief towards humans. He, that just made him curious uh, in terms of making it that. And his dad died a year and a half ago, and he just had to start processing bitter, bigger questions around life and what, what am I here for and how long have I got and all of those. And, but not out of a fear-based kind of thing. He was listening to, you know, the, the bigger, broader religious conversation with the... YouTube philosophers of our day, um, and uh, and just yeah, starting to see the utility of belief, and then he just had a really powerful religious experience where he experienced God, and he said, "Look, there are some days where I doubt. Most days, I really believe it, and overall, I'm really enjoying having stepped into the story again." And he's given himself completely to kind of to it. Um, so it's it's funny, you know, uh, the people that you would have thought are the really closed ones can actually be much closer than you realize, and. and and in some ways, 
um, even though he was zealous for God and yet ignorant, you would classify the Apostle Paul as being close to becoming a Christian. Um, the kind of, you know, uh, or, uh, not in terms of the stoning, but he's the Ben Shapiro of the day. <laughs> he's the Jewish defender of, uh, you know, conservative theology and thinking. And, uh, and then he has a conversation with the risen Jesus and becomes a Christian, you know. Um, and so there are these sorts of things where I'm just not sure they're closed or open. I think how we interact with people is just really important. And there's no room for Christians to be jerks or to be arrogant. Um, you know, Jesus uh, said that we're to be salt and light. The Apostle Paul said, let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Not what to answer everyone, how to answer everyone, full of grace, seasoned with salt. The Apostle Peter, do this with gentleness and respect, you know, to Paul to Timothy, to correct them gently again and again. And this is just the pattern, I think, of, of how Christians should get in, into conversations. Um, where I've found people to be really hard and rigid and closed and aggressive, it's usually they've got some good reasons to be. And my manner and my tone, my accent in being a Christian will play a lot more into whether or not they're willing to engage in the conversation. So um, I don't know whether that's useful. Yeah. So you're basically saying don't, um, don't even bother trying to assess where a person's at because you, you don't really know. Sometimes the people that, you, that come across as the furthest away are actually one step away, one experience away, one conversation away. Um, yeah, yeah. Because those that, it's the apathetic ones that are the hardest, you know, the ones that just, I don't care about all of this. It's the ones that are usually really aggressive because they've, they either see it as being really bad and that can be a perspective that shifts or because they've been really badly hurt um, by something and that can be something where some kind words can, can bring hope or healing or encourage it to see it from a different angle. Yeah. Um, I think there was one here, yeah. Um, I just want to go back to what when you were talking about um, Paul, how he became like a Jew, you know, yep. to others, and I think that's really important because as when you look at, at, at the Gospels and how Jesus talked, he spoke in parables, mm-hmm. and he knew, ex- and parables were sort of like a story to tell something, but in a different way. You get me mm-hmm. for the thing, and. We have this hope on Friday. We have we give out meals, and I'm getting to know a few people now because I sit down and listen. And what comes across two times is when I use scripture and I show them a picture of God, mm-hmm. and they were blown away. Because what happens is that they all line up at the door and they're all fighting to get in first, right? Because they're all want their food mm. and oh, anyway and one one morning this lady we were sitting there talking and saying oh god this god this and that and i said yeah but um what happens is that god's a very just god and very good and what happens is when you've got this great big line and you've got the first person in there who's greedy god turns the line around and that person becomes last and the last becomes first and she started crying. Mm. She said, wow, that is wonderful. Like she never, ever saw Jesus or God in that way. Mm. And I thought, we just have to, we've got to find out where they are, like you said. You've got to know their story and mm. where they come from. Yeah, yeah so show them a I think absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. My, my experience, and I was chatting to Shabu on the way here, 
every question I've ever been asked, I could actually boil it down to one of two questions. And the question is, is this true or is God good? So science and religion has... Yeah, absolutely. Now, why, why trust the Bible? What about all the other religions? All of that kind of stuff. That's all that is, the, is it true. But the vast preponderance of questions come down to what is God like? Is he really good? So evil and suffering or hiddenness or what about those people who never hear the gospel or questions around hell or God's dealing with judgment or all of this kind of stuff. It actually comes from this question of what is God like? Is that the kind of God I want to lean into? Is that the kind of God I could worship? And so for a lot of people... Um, the biggest thing that holds them back from a kind of framework point of view is that they've got God framed wrong in one way or another. It may be one image that's just too dominant rather than, uh, you know, so God's a judge, but that's the only image through which you understand God as judge or God's a father, but that's the only image and you had a bad father and so it's a negative relation. So there's all these different kinds of images and, and what our, our invitation to do is just to continue the work of framing God right as he's been revealed in Jesus of Nazareth. That's the best image that you can get of what God is fully like and people in our culture are still very warm to Jesus. But there are also, and I don't want to undermine this, there are a significant number of people that for them it's just, well, give me some reasons more than this is just nice. You know, what actually is the harder evidence why I can look into this? And so that's why I don't think you can get away with uh, or give away. Um, you just talking about before, so about the usefulness of apologetics. It's good for some, not for others. I would say everyone uses apologetics. It's just a question of whether it's helpful or not helpful. So actually, a testimony is a form of evidence. Right? You're talking about experiential evidence, subjective experience that has had a transformative power. You're talking about supernatural work in your life. That is a kind of apologetic. It's your reason why you believe. And different people's apologetics will vary as to what you're comfortable with. And what my encouragement is, that's great. Find out why you believe what you believe. Is it an experience? Is it some more reasons? Is it something that you see beautiful about the Christian story, goodness, true, or beauty? Whatever that is. But then recognize that what other people need won't always come from your own way of doing things. And that's what I meant at the beginning. If we love people enough, we're not just going to expect that they'll become a Jew in order to meet Jesus, but rather that I'll become like they are. I will try and learn the inside of their world and what's helpful to them to be able to bridge that kind of a difference. Uh, yeah. But no one in, I'm not expecting anyone in here to be you know, the next William Lane Craig or something like that. The, not is to do it as other people do it, but to find that your unique voice in how you take what they know and then make it helpful in conversations. Yeah. Yeah. Great. I think we'll make this the last one and then uh, I'll let you all free. Talking about pictures, um, those five images you showed that <laughs> you use in conjunction with the story, how do you use those in a practical sense? You mean the actual um, visual images? Yeah. Well, I would say a couple of ways. So um, if I'm doing talks, I'll always use them, mainly because a ton of people just aren't all that good at audibly learning. You know, It's, actually, it's a really hard thing for a lot of people to sit down for an hour and just listen to talking. Um, some people love it. Uh, I'm a reasonably good audible learner, but other people aren't. And I actually find the pictures themselves can paint a thousand words. And so they're looking at the picture, and even if they zone out of view, they're processing all these different images that are up there, and the concept of created for good, and images or experiences get burned into our memory way more than words do. So that's my hope, is I'll, I'll use it if I'm doing talks like that. Um, in situations like at our house, we've got them printed out, uh, and they're on the wall down in my study, and so we talk about it with the kids. It's like a point of reference for explaining the Christian story. Whenever um, people have questions, I encourage them to write it down on sticky notes and to post it on one of those five scenes. So nearly every 
question that someone will have actually anchors somewhere. You know, is God a cosmic child abuser in crucifying Jesus? Well, that goes in the restored phobetic category. Or, you know, is hell fair for proportional sins committed in a finite lifetime? You know, put that in there. So you're trying to help them learn, hey, this is a story you can question, but get the concept that it is a story and learn how to pull it apart. There's a couple of practical ways you could use it. If you had the images saved in your photos on your phone, you could show people as you wanted to kind of wander through, use it as a prompt, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we might do one more because that was a short one. It's only 10 to 9. Any other questions? Great. Thank you. Just here. I was just thinking that um, it's sometimes just a God thing that he's, the people are ready because, you know, God's there at that time. And uh, I know from a friend of mine, she went to uni and was doing a science course and she wrote me a letter that said, I could never have faith like you because Mm. I have to have facts. And it was about the time the Billy Graham crusade came Mm. and Billy's very plain gospel. And the next letter I got from her only a week or so later was, I've just become a Christian. Mm. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah, and I I would say everything that I'm talking about tonight is in conjunction with God does his thing and we're meant to do ours. It's a partnership. Um, You'll never convince anyone of anything in and of your own self. Uh, That's more probably manipulative techniques. It's just about trying to be faithful witnesses, the kind of stewards and and, um, uh, um, uh, agents of of God, helping people frame him rightly. Uh, That's our job. That's what he's given to us. We get the joy of doing with him and he'll do his thing. Um, On the facts and faith thing, um, I didn't talk about this tonight, but this is just incredibly important to understand. Christian faith is not the opposite of fact, as so many people suppose it is. People think faith is one thing, reason is another. Actually, that's not the right kind of setup of offices. Christian faith, as evidenced by this verse in John's Gospel, is evidence-based. Right now, I have faith in my wife that whilst I'm in another city, she's not cheating on me. Now, I do not have a drone with a camera hovering over her location. I have not hired a sleuth detective. There are not hidden cameras in our house. There is no way I can 100% prove this to you right now. But yet I have faith that she's not cheating on me. Is that blind faith? No. What is that faith built on? It is built on 10 years of living with this woman, of knowing her character, of seeing her patterns of behavior, of seeing her concern and devotion to me and to our family and to the Lord. It is a faith that is based on facts that makes it a confident faith. And this is the interplay, right? Christian faith, faith is all about trusting on the basis of what you do know for what you haven't yet seen. Faith is about trusting on the basis of what you do know for what you haven't yet seen. And so when Christians are encouraged to walk by faith, not by sight, that's not being a blind faith. It's not a leap into the dark. It's because of what God has revealed himself to be consistently throughout time, ultimately revealed in Jesus. Because God exists and he is good, I trust him for what I haven't yet seen come to pass, the promises that he's made to me. And so I think this is incredibly important that Christians understand that faith and facts work together. Faith is built on the foundation foundation of facts. That's what makes it a solid foundation. Otherwise, it's not really a faith actually worth holding. I would say a blind faith is a foolish faith, and that's not the faith that's encouraged in the New Testament. And, and just to, to give this uh, a little bit of uh, uh, an oomph, um, there were two words that the Greek writers of the New Testament could have used 
uh, to describe the idea of faith, belief, or trust. One is the term nemitso, which is to believe on the basis of custom or tradition. Your parents believed it, your culture believes it, therefore you just receive that as the way of making sense of reality and you don't question it. That's nemitso, to believe on the basis of custom or tradition. The second term is pistis or pistuo, to believe on the basis of the credibility of the claim, whether the person bringing it or the evidence for the claim itself. Now, without fail, every single time Christians in the New Testament are encouraged to have faith, it uses that second term. It's twice right there that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and believing have life in his name. What's the basis of that? Well, he's just told you, these things I have written. The seven claims of Jesus. I am the, the bread of life. I am uh, the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the true shepherd. I am the, the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. These seven claims to be his identity, and then the seven miracles across John's gospel, which he calls semeon, signs, pointing towards the reality of who he ultimately is. It's on the base of his claims about himself and the miracles that back them up and the character of his life. This is the evidence that me as an eyewitness is giving to you so that you can believe in him, have faith in him, put your trust in him. It is an evidence-based faith. And so we need to dispel the idea that faith is believing in the absence of evidence. It's not. Faith is following the evidence to the right conclusion and then trusting him for what we haven't yet seen come to pass. Does that make sense? Um, because that's really, really the, the thing, because of the influence of Richard Dawkins, you know, faith is believing in the absence of evidence. Say it long enough, and people start thinking that's the truth. That's not how faith is defined in any dictionary. Faith just means confidence, belief, or trust. And it's a question of whether it's an evidence-based faith, like what Christianity is, or it's a blind faith, which is what, you know, if I asked you right now, hey, give me your wallet, that's a blind faith. You don't know me, right? You don't know my character. That's a silly thing for you to do. But if in 10 years I said, hey, give me your wallet, you'd be like, yeah, I'm okay with that. Well, I would hope that that's what you would say after knowing me for 10 years. Um, but uh, let me wrap up um, just by giving thanks to the Lord and, um, and then we'll let you out. Uh, Heavenly Father, we don't talk to you as though we are speaking or posting letters to a non-existent address. We know that you hear us. And we know that you're pleased whenever our eyes turn to you, our hearts turn to you. And I want to pray that you would help in our own mind's eye be able to see you rightly as you've been revealed in your son Jesus. The prodigal father searching the horizon for a glimpse of that which was lost, that which was dead, turning to come home than enveloping it in grace. Lord, we want to pray that we would have the right understanding of who you are and that we talk and think and prepare more so that we'd be helpful when others ask in being able to help share that vision. For everyone here whose heartbeat is that their friends and family would get to hear about Jesus and to take their questions seriously and respond in a way that's helpful. I, I want to pray, Lord, that you would add to their desire now, diligence, direction, and a discipline to be able to take what they've heard and to go and study, to think, to talk out loud, to have better faith conversations, to be sharpening themselves so that the opportunities arise, they can be more useful. I ask that you would fill everyone with your spirit to new measure, that they would sense your presence and your power going with them, that they're never alone, but you're always with them to the very end of the age. And I would ask, Lord, that 
in the years to come just as I share the good news about my mate who has come to see your reality again. Lord, I want to pray that that would be true of the faces and names that they began tonight with in their mind. Lord, we pray for them that their hearts would be softened, that you would give us opportunities to love them well and to share with them the truth, goodness, and, and, and relevance of Jesus. And we ask that in his name. Amen. Amen. Cool. Well, thanks for coming out on a Saturday night. I hope it was useful. Um, this link, uh, my computer died. Um, so, yeah, the same one I SMSed you. Yeah, so Shabu's got a link. Uh, I don't know how he'll get it to you. Um, one way you can do that is if you're at Canterbury Gardens, um, we have a members Facebook page. Go on there and I'll put the link up. If you're not part of Canterbury Gardens, email office at cgcc.org.au. Mm. office at cgcc.org.au the brown pastor said there's a link available <laughs> and then we will send the link to you cool Okay? Yes, absolutely. So um, the, let me just explain what the link is. Um, it's just to a Dropbox folder where I've put a bunch of goodies in there. Um, there are some animated videos that can be useful in looking at and sharing. There are a whole lot of the, the notes for tonight. There are recommended readings. There are helpful questions. Um, there's just a wealth of stuff in there. It's just a, a big Dropbox dump if any of it's useful to you. So, um, yeah, hope that's uh, of help. Uh, actually, the course details I don't think are now that you ask me. It's a really good question. So um, you'll be able to find it from rzim.org, but it's called the RZIM Academy. So if you go to the rzimacademy.org, um, it's just the core module on there, and it runs a new course every month. You go through it with a bunch of people from all over the world and with moderators. You just jump on whenever it suits you over the course of that week to watch the lectures and do the stuff. And um, So it's, uh, it's really worthwhile doing. Yeah, I, I learn a ton every time I do it again. I do it every year with a bunch of people, um, and I keep learning. So the, it's some of my heroes um, that are on there doing, delivering the content. It's their good stuff. So it's cool.